Stefan, we got uh, Seth on the line. What do you want to ask him? What are like some of the things you're doing differently now in terms of underwriting? As far as underwriting is concerned, you know, so we always talk about what's the most important thing, the sponsor, the market, or the deal. Mm-hmm. Typically, we're going to say it's the sponsor, right? Mm-hmm. But that's a little bit different than what's the biggest risk to the deal. The biggest risk to the deal is the debt. And that's the part that's a little bit uncertain nowadays and you need to be careful with. Um, so when you go to your underwriting and you're planning on refinancing in your two or three or even five, or you're going to sell, you know, you've, you've got to make sure that you factor in the possibility that those interest rates might be much, much higher than they are today. This is the Diary of an Apartment Investor podcast, and I'm your host, Brian Briscoe. Now, this podcast is designed for the aspiring apartment investor and literally gives them the opportunity to ask the questions that will help them get to the next level. So if you're an aspiring apartment investor, this podcast is for you. Now, this podcast is brought to you by the Tribe of Titans Multifamily Educational Community. It's your one-stop shop for learning how to succeed at apartment investing. Welcome to the Diary of an Apartment Investor podcast. I'm your host, Brian Briscoe. Uh, Very excited for today's show. It's another one of our Ask the Expert episodes. We've got two great people on the line with us today. we got Seth Bradley and Stefan Svetskov. So, Stefan, did I say that right? Yeah, that was perfect, actually, Brian. Wow, nailed it. First try, like uh, Lego Batman (laughs) says, but... Excuse me. What what you didn't hear is me practicing it like 18 times before we hit the record button, but we'll say first try. Um, so that said, guys, welcome to the show. Thanks, man. Appreciate you having us on. Absolutely. And and yeah, Seth, yep. Uh, Seth, first we'll we'll talk with you. Uh, tradition on the show is to talk with our experienced investor first, and that's you. So let's let's get rolling. Tell us a little bit about yourself, your background, and you know, kind of walk us into how you got into multifamily. Yeah, sure, man. Well, I'll take it back pretty far, but I'll try to get through it pretty quick, man. I I grew up with a a blue collar background. My mom's a retired grade school teacher. My dad's a retired coal miner. So I kind of grew up with that. I call it a blue collar mindset where it's just trading trading time for money, right? And to me, growing up, I I just tried to figure out what's the best job I could get. And I, you know, I didn't stick with blue collar, went with white collar. And I'm going to med school because I figured being a doctor was the best job that I could possibly get. Um, went to med school for a year, hated it, started my second year, went for a few weeks, ended up dropping out because I just I knew it wasn't for me. Mm-hmm. Um, ended up getting my MBA and then started thinking about well, what's the next best, still in that same mindset, what's the next best job that I can get? And to me, that was to become an attorney. Mm-hmm. So I went to law school, went through all those, jumped through all those hoops, did really well there, got a big law firm job, you know, kind of got down that pathway a little, little bit further where it's like, okay let's build a billion hours and try to bring in clients and, you know, have a billion bosses and and maybe one day I'll make partner. Um, But along the way, I started kind of figuring out that that wasn't for me either. Um, I I was just trying to, there's, there was just something kind of burning inside that I had no idea what it was. Um, It was really that entrepreneurial mindset, uh, Mm -hmm. that entrepreneurial spirit. Um, So I, I started investing in real estate. Actually, as soon as I got my first big law firm job invested in a duplex, um, house act into that, started nice. buying fix and flips and single family rentals and kind of worked my way up to smaller multifamily and the larger stuff um, into started investing passively into syndications and then mm-hmm. onto the active side. So that's kind of how I went from, you know, 
rural West Virginia with a blue collar mindset all the way up to um, big time apartment syndications. Yeah. You know, I, I had a, a blue collar mindset as well. Um, when I, when I first learned the difference between blue collar and white collar jobs, I knew my dad was a blue collar worker because he always wore a blue collared shirt to work, you know, but uh, uh, he, he was a mailman and mailman had that's part of their uniform. But, uh, um, you know, at least at least from that aspect, you know, we, we both come from that blue collar home. But uh, um, so walk us through that that first investment property, that, that first, um, you know, you said house hack duplex. You know, what was going through your mind when you made that decision? You know, you you, you had a presumably a pretty decent job at the time. But why why house hack into a duplex? Yeah, I, I just always had it in the back of my mind that real estate was a great investment. I mean, I remember even been being an undergrad trying to convince my dad, like, hey, we should buy like these townhouses here and rent them out. And I had no idea what I was doing at the time. And obviously he didn't give me the money to do it. Yep. But it was always in my mind. So as soon as I had any money at all, that was the first thing I thought about doing. And at the time I was, you know, kind of doing the thing that a lot of people do is listen to bigger pockets yep. and all of that. Listen to the bigger pockets podcast, learn about real estate investing. And talk my wife into instead of buying, you know, a nice single family house with, you know, the white picket fence. We're like, hey, let's get a duplex so mm-hmm. we can live in one half, rent out the other. And she was she was good with it. So mm-hmm. that started the investing journey. Um, you know, obviously having a partner that's that's on board with you to to live through those sorts of things and make wise investments at the beginning is is uh, is a good yeah. thing. Yeah, I I actually proposed the idea of uh, buying a duplex to my wife, and she completely shot it down. Um, now the flip side is we had four kids at the time, and finding a duplex that has one side big enough for four kids, you know, yeah, maybe maybe I wasn't the smartest to suggest that, but uh, um, that makes yeah, a difference for sure. It does. <laughs> it absolutely did. And you know, when when she when she protested, it was just like, okay, yeah, you're right. There's probably not a duplex anywhere big enough for our family, but, uh, you know, good, good that you guys got in on that one. Now you're in San Diego. Now was that duplex in San Diego or was that somewhere else? No, that was somewhere else. That was back in West Virginia. Okay. Um, yep. Still own the duplex, still a great mm-hmm. rental, um, sort of buying, you know, single family duplex one to four units kind of all over the place, Cleveland, West Virginia, North Carolina, mm-hmm. um, even in California now, uh, before I started, uh, you know, in, in my legal practice, I worked in real estate, Mm-hmm. closing these hundred million dollar plus deals for other people. Yep. And, but I was still stuck in that mindset. It, you know, to me, even though I was helping them close and I was giving them advice, mm-hmm. I still wasn't comfortable with the fact, or even, you know, I didn't even realize the fact that I could do those deals myself. Yeah. Um, even though I was right up against them every single day. Yeah. So eventually I kind of had that aha moment and realized, Hey, I can do this too. Mm-hmm. And it started kind of, you know, doing, doing the networking, asking people how to get involved and started investing passively first, um, mm-hmm. invested passively in a number of deals uh, because I was that's what I was advised to do. And it was good advice. It's a great way to get your feet wet and to figure mm-hmm. out um, you know, how to invest and to see those types of investments from a mm-hmm. passive investor perspective um, before jumping into the active side. Love it. Love it. So going going back to kind of the, the trigger, and I, I like I really like talking about the like the inflection points, little triggers. You say that for for a while, you know, you were you were just transactional. You were doing the transactions, and eventually, you realized you had that light bulb moment. Was there something specific you think that triggered that light bulb moment, or what what made you make that transition? I don't know if it was just one event. It was more of a series of events where I, you know, the clients would come in, we'd talk about the deal, and the more that I interacted with these clients, the more I just realized that they were just regular people. They're just guys like you and me 
They're not, uh, you know, Donald Trump or somebody out there sitting in an ivory tower. They're just regular guys that are taking down these massive deals. Right. Mm -hmm. And I needed to, at that point, I I figured out or along the way, I figured out, Hey, I I can do this. I just Mm -hmm. need to get the right network and figure out how to, how to, how to do it. All right. So basically what you're saying is the more you were around these people, the more you realize that there's doesn't take anybody special. I mean, you have to work hard like any other business, but you know, you don't have to show up with, you know, the, the silver, you, ha- you don't have to be born with that silver spoon in your mouth. So exactly. All right. Got it. Got it. All right. So let's, let's talk a little bit right now about, uh, motivation, what I call the big burning. Why, you know, why, why do you do what you do? Yeah. Um, I, my big, why is, is freedom. And I know it sounds a, a little bit generic, but you know, I can dive a little bit deeper. You know, I, I think the, the first step is, is really freedom of money, right? You need to figure out a way to not stop trading your time for money. So yeah. that, that creates freedom. And, and that's my big why is to create freedom, freedom of your time, freedom of relationships, freedom of location, yep. just so you can you can do what you want, when you want, mm-hmm. where you want and who you want to do it with. Yeah. Um, so, you know, just the word freedom really encompasses, a, you know, a number of things. I mean, family, yeah. friends, experiences and, and mainly just living a, a fulfilled, happy life that you can be happy with. Yeah. You know, and I've we've done 260 or so episodes, and that theme is keeps on recurring. I think that's that's a motivation for most people is to be able to control your life essentially. You not have to, you know, trade time for money, not having to keep on, you know, going back and punching that time card. Does anybody punch time cards anymore? I don't. I don't think that even that's even a thing anymore. But uh, I mean, um, attor- attor- attorneys are pretty damn close, man. I mean, you got to bill every six minutes. So yeah, <laughs> yeah. I mean, we. I, I often I often wonder I'm looking at a word document on my my screen. They have like the old floppy disk line. My kids have never seen a flo- a floppy. And I think some of the things we say like punch your time card, you know, there there used to be a little, you know, lever you'd pull to punch it. And so anyway, the the, the ref kind of kind of funny how how I think language evolves, but uh that's I digress. We need to get back to the topic, but uh um <laughs> Yeah, why why Microsoft still uses that little floppy disk for their save button? I don't know, but uh, um, anyway, uh, let's talk a little bit about some of the the multifamily projects you've been involved with. Um, if you could, you know, pick your first, your favorite, whichever one you want to talk about, give us an idea of you know the the scope and and your involvement in it. Yeah, I mean, I'll talk about one we have going on right now. It's 506C, so we can talk about it. It's uh, all day long. uh, Benovia at Withers Farms. It's Mm -hmm. actually a a 55 plus um, senior Mm -hmm. housing um, apartment complex, 190 units. It's in a uh, suburb outside of Kansas City. And this is is a little bit uh, new for me because it's ground up development. Now, not new to me as far as an attorney. I've done tons of deals like that. But um, being on the GP side of things, mm-hmm. um, the development thing is pretty new. Um, but it is, you know, with, with the way that cap rates are being compressed and the competition out there for, you know, your typical mm-hmm. value add multifamily is just getting harder and harder and harder to find. Yeah. Um, you know, I'm seeing more opportunities in development and even other types of spaces. So this was an excellent opportunity. It's actually a JV Mm-hmm. Um, with the developer themselves, and we're coming in with with a big chunk of capital and and uh, resources. Nice. So, a couple of questions there. You know, why fifty five plus? What what's what's led you towards that? 
Um, really, it was sourced from the developer. That's what they focus on. Um, they've done this type of thing many times before, and that's what they focus on. And this uh, suburb in Kansas City um, actually doesn't even have any of that type of of housing, so it, it's uh-huh. in demand. So it, it's more of a supply and demand type of mm-hmm. uh, type of thing that that's bringing that about. Okay. Now I I just did some quick mental math. It helps that I'm 45 and I can just add 10. So that's like you know 60s people who were born in you know 65 or earlier, 66 or earlier, um, are in that 55 plus group. And I was just thinking, you know, that that's like the tail end of the baby boomers right there. So we got a lot of baby boomers yeah. who are in that in that age group right there. And I know a lot of people are downsizing. So yeah, um, that's right. And you know, these seniors, but it's 55, you're not that old. It's, no. you know, there's, there's a clubhouse, there's a fitness center, there's an outdoor pool, there's, you know, patios and uh, dog parks and everything, just like you'd see in, you know, a brand new class, a multifamily. Yeah. And I mean, bringing it closer to home, literally the, the house that I'm sitting in right now, we, we purchased two months for, ago from, uh, a couple that was, you know, 60, you know, I think they were, they were right around late fifties, early sixties, empty nesters. And, you know, they, they had six kids or they still have six kids, but they didn't need a five bedroom house anymore. Um, me with five kids, I still need a five bedroom house, but, uh, so that that's exactly what they're doing. And I think, uh, the 55 plus move is, is a smart one in a lot of ways, just because of the demographics, you have the baby boomers, the largest generation um, at its time was, and they're all looking, not all of them, but a lot of those people are looking to downsize, looking for something that suits them perfectly. Yeah. I mean, I can just think of my, my parents, they're a little bit older. Uh, they're in, they're in their seventies, but you know, they, we have a 200 acre farm in, in the middle of nowhere and they can't keep up with that. They would love to live in a facility like this, where, you know, you've got everything there. You've got folks your same age you can socialize with. And you don't have to worry about all the upkeep anymore. Yeah. Yeah. A lot, lot of, lot of pluses in there. And then um, the other part of this, that's uh, you said it was new to you was, was de- development. Um, talk us, talk us through, you know, a little more detail, why development and uh, you know, what the, the actual benefits are there. Yeah. I mean, at least to the, from the investor standpoint, it, the, the ground of development should have better returns. I mean, cause you know, theoretically, there's more risk, right? Theoretically, there's more risk. You, you don't have the existing uh, building there. You're building from scratch. Mm-hmm. You can come in in different parts of the development process to de-risk it. For instance, mm-hmm. this one is already entitled. They've already laid the foundations before we joint ventured with them. Mm-hmm. So a lot of that stuff is out of the way. Yep. Um, it's in a Midwest market. So it's not in California or New York, where it's really hard to get entitlement. And yep. you can be delayed for three to five to 10 years, who knows? Mm -hmm. Um, So there's ways to de-risk it. Um, So, you know, that that's one difference. Um, You you should get better returns. Um, You end up with a better, um, a better building, uh, Mm -hmm. a better community by the end of the day. Um, You shouldn't have, you know, these massive uh, maintenance bills by the end of the day. Um, So there's a lot of advantages um, to go along with maybe a little bit more risk. Yeah. Yeah. And something that I realized not too long ago, I think development is the ultimate value add. A lot of people talk about value add properties, but taking a bare piece of land and putting something on it, I mean, that's better than any C-class value add I've ever seen, you know, as far as how much value you're actually adding. So, um, and and some some things that I've noticed in a lot of areas with, with the pricing right now, the cost basis is lower when you come in and develop, you know, which um, sounds crazy. You know, I, I know like three years ago when I started investing and we're 
all, all the properties that I'm in GPN are Southeast, but um, when we started investing, the re, the new <clears throat> new build cost was almost twice as much as buying existing C-Class. And I think the tables have turned now to where in some areas it's cheaper to build than buy. So yeah. So I, you know, I said I was new to development. This is actually the second one. We we closed on another one earlier in the year, but it was a little bit different. It was a build to rent community. Mm-hmm. And that was in Lafayette, uh, Louisiana. Mm-hmm. And just to your point, we, including the land, the entitlement costs, and the build, mm-hmm. we ended up about 130K a unit for a three-bedroom. Mm-hmm. Bath house, thirteen hundred square foot house. And and what what's the what, what's a comparable house go for in that area right now? Um, probably double that. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Holy cow. Yeah. So, um, yeah. I think I think you 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 laid things out fairly fairly well. You know, overall there is a little higher risk because there's more time. There's a lot of things that can go on during a build, during the entitlement process, or during the lease up, or whatever. Um, but the returns are there, so it's a little higher risk, higher reward scenario. And I think in a lot of areas, there's a lot of uh, a lot more potential, especially when you look at your cost basis um, versus buying new. Um, and something else that I, I'm glad you mentioned that I hadn't realized is ways to de-risk it. You came in after foundation was poured, after it was entitled. So, you know, your, your investors are probably pretty happy with that scenario because there's a lot less risk and they're still getting upside. Yeah, that's what's interesting about development. You kind of got to dive in a little bit deeper mm-hmm. um, to see where you can de-risk it, see where you're coming in the deal. If you're coming in before, you know, the developers even purchase the land or maybe he just got the land under contract, you know, that's probably the most risky position because he's still got to get those government approvals. There's going to be some time involved. Um, he's still got to you know, hire a contractor and all that kind of stuff, depending on if he's partnering with someone or not. There's a lot of factors that go into that, but the further you come into the process, mm-hmm. uh, the less risk there is and the more it starts looking at, looking like kind of that ultimate value add type of yeah, play. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and one, more, one more thing you mentioned that I think de-risks it is you say you're partnering with somebody who's done it before. You know, absolutely. Many and that times. comes into play with anything, even a value add. You want to see people with a track record. Mm-hmm. Um, they've done it before in the same markets, in the same type of asset, and that that de-risks any deal. All right, love it, love it. All right, so so last question for you, and then we'll we'll uh, start uh, we'll shift gears a little more. But what's next for you? Yeah, so you know, lately uh, I've been using my legal expertise in mm-hmm. real estate and securities to partner, well, just not as a service, but to actually partner with a select number of operating groups. Mm-hmm. Um, not very many because I, I want to work with folks that I like to work with. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, I can only be spread so thin, but basically what I can do is, you know, serve as an in-house counsel role, mm-hmm. use my business sense, um, use my real estate and securities attorney uh, mm-hmm. work. And, you know, it, it's a great alignment of interest. I've gotten a lot of traction with that and mm-hmm. had a lot of success with that this year. All right. So so who who would be like the, the ideal person to take advantage of that? Somebody like you, Brian. All right. <laughs> Perfect. Sold. So so you, you come in as a, as a GP member and then are, you're also doing all the syndication documents and everything else? That's right. I come in as a GP member. Um, you know, I'll handle all the legal work, or we can outsource it. It really just depends on on what the needs are. But typically, you know, if needed, I'll come in. I'll do the real estate work. I'll do the securities work. I'll act in a role as in-house counsel, meaning I'm 
part of the ownership group. Yeah. Right. And I'm not this third party vendor that's got um, 15 million deals that he's dealing with. And you say, hey, we got to turn this PSA. And, you know, he gets back to you a week later. You know, I'm in the deal. I'm part of the ownership group. Yeah. I'm in the same boat as you. Our interests are aligned and we're going to get the deal done. Yeah. Um, and it's a little bit different as well because I'm not only on the legal side, but the business side. So I'm looking at it from that perspective. And again, we're swimming uh, in the same boat or rowing the same way in the same boat and trying to get this deal done. Yeah. You know, I, I have said before that the perfect people to have on your team as partners um, would, would be an attorney and a CPA, you know, as far as, you know, if you're, if you're looking for other syndication partners, um, you know, and, and partially because that's, and maybe I say that cause that's been on my weak point and my partner's weak points, you know, was, was legal and, uh, and CPA, but, uh, I, lo- I love the idea. Um, and you know, hopefully, hopefully you guys, you get a lot of, a lot of good deals come from that. So, yeah. um, that said, let's uh, shift gears and, and bring Stefan on. So Stefan, welcome. Yeah. Thanks, Brian. Um, yeah. Yes. So to to introduce myself, I guess. So I am a financial engineer, actually, mm-hmm. in my prior career. So I've been. Um, so I I came to the states like at 22. So I mm-hmm. um, I came for my masters in New York City, and I've been working in finance for like about 10 years. Mm-hmm. And in the recent few years, I've been in the real estate industry as a full time investor, and yeah. actually consider myself an experienced residential investor because mm-hmm. I've done kind of like a few millions of dollars of deals. It's just not um, where the aspiration is, you know, getting into commercial multifamily. Yeah. And that's kind of what I've been doing at the moment. So kind of bidding on um, like bigger, like I guess 50 to 100 unit uh, mm-hmm. commercial properties in the Midwest. But um, yeah, my prior career, a financial engineer, I also run a company called Realty Quant, mm-hmm. um, which is an analytics, like data analytics company in the real estate industry. And I speak on data-driven real estate investing, which is basically the practice of like writing lots of code mm-hmm. and essentially like um, to discover like better properties on the residential and the commercial side and kind of modeling, modeling properties and so forth. And also at Realty Quant, we are mm-hmm. publishing, as you already know, some market yeah. data, some market analytics for um, predicting pre- predominant downside risk. Mm-hmm. So that's, that is that. But as far as my experience in the, the investing space, so like I mentioned, I've done um, a few different strategies like condominium conversions mm-hmm. in the New York City area, uh, in places like downtown Jersey City, um, WeHoke and, um, and that. I've done like a few other like kind of like arbitrage, like liquidity mm-hmm. strategies for like even like smaller size deals as well. Yep. Um, so it's overall like pretty good experience in the residential space, but I've been always on the verge of like jumping into commercial. And I'm very happy to be here with a set today to, yeah. to hear about the mindset of that. And, um, you know, since that's pretty much where I am right now, you yeah. know, transitioning into, um, into a commercial. Yeah, and so so I'll just just mention you know the the realty quant uh, that that's something that I'm I'm one of his customers I get uh, you know his his data sent to me so I can I can know what's going on but uh, let me let me ask you a question you know um, what what markets are you really hot on right now since you're doing this data driven approach. Yeah, I mean this is a really uh, interesting question now, especially with the. I guess like yield curve, <laughs> you guys heard about last week. Yeah, quite an duration. And um, Deutsche Bank came in today with like some of their like recession 
timing predictions and mm-hmm. and so forth. And um, we've seen like mortgage rates rise about five percent yesterday. Um, so it's been like quite interesting in that sense. Mm-hmm. But I mean, as Brian, you have seen like some of my data yeah. Uh, yeah. on the downside risk. So there, I'm seeing like higher market valuations in Western markets. Mm-hmm predominantly and then like to a lesser extent in southern markets or to some extent in southern markets mm-hmm. so it just becomes a question of like risk tolerance my only risk tolerance being very risk averse at the moment is in the midwest mm-hmm. yeah yeah and and incidentally like, like you said the, the data set is somewhat aimed at trying to predict which markets are overvalued and mm-hmm. by by that way you're you're limiting your downside risk you know so if, if there is another crash or another recession you know you're you're going to be in an area that doesn't have any sort of bubble is, is the idea behind it so um anyway um I'll, I'll put a link to your your website in the show notes for anybody who's interested in that but uh um move, moving on one question I, I do like to ask everybody is is what is your big burning why uh, yeah, so my big burning why I like investments and I like doing like new strategies that nobody thought of. And I like doing like analytics. I like doing so my big burning why is to do to have to set point so to have freedom and also do work that is kind of at the edge of my abilities, mm-hmm. kind of like that is stretching my abilities that I'm able to, you know, like mentally exercise and kind of like it's kind of like physical exercise, like stay, stay, stay healthy and Mm-hmm. so forth so so this is really but but combined with the freedom so to also to set point you know very much it's very driving for me as well like i couldn't do it uh for an employer so it's, it always has to be like your own thing yeah yeah it's it's amazing how much more energy i have to work for myself than you know for for somebody else but uh all right well hey thanks for sharing all that and, and that said Stefan, we got uh, seth on the line what do you want to ask him yeah, that's actually, that's a, I think it's a great time. So at the moment, like set, I know you mentioned Kansas City, and that's actually like one of my, see, like my risk tolerance markets, right? Which is great. But what are your, um, I guess, like, what are like some of the things you're doing differently now in terms of underwriting? Is there different underwriting that you do at the current time compared to, you know, let's say two years ago or, or you know, or three years ago, let's say, um, that you that you have, at the moment or is it or are you perhaps bullish because you know there's like pretty different sentiment on this IPO at the current time yeah yeah i mean i i'm still very bullish on multifamily mm-hmm. and commercial real estate in general um mm-hmm. as far as underwriting is concerned you know so we always talk about what's the most important thing the sponsor the market of the deal mm-hmm. typically we're going to say it's the sponsor right mm-hmm. but that's a little bit different than what's the biggest risk to the deal the biggest risk to the deal is the debt and that's the part that's a little bit uncertain nowadays and you need to be careful with. Um, so when you go to your underwriting and you're planning on refinancing in your two or three or even five, or you're going to sell, you know, you've, you've got to make sure that you factor in the possibility that those interest rates might be much, much higher than they are today. Yeah. And that makes a huge difference in your projected returns in your underwriting. So that's something definitely to pay attention to. Yeah. Speaking of, I saw I saw a deal come across my desk uh, earlier. Actually, it was it was last year. I forget we're we're only April this year, but uh, you know about a year ago. And you know, digging through the numbers, the they were projecting a refinance at, after the first year, and they were going to return all of the investors' capital 
100% of the investor's capital and maybe a little bit more. So, so their debt service was going to go up by a million and a half um, or that their debt was going to go up by a million and a half. But with, with how they baked in the interest rates, their debt service was going to go down. You know, cause, So it, it's just one of those things where they were assuming like a 3.25% interest rate. And I, I, think, I think you hit the nail on the head, Seth, because that that particular deal right there hinged on a very successful year refinance and we're about a year into that deal and rates are in the fours you know and um you know for for fanny freddie you're looking at mid fours right now instead of low threes so huge deal a lot of uncertainty there yeah i mean when, when the cap rates are coming down the interest rates are going up that that difference is getting much thinner so the the meat on the bone is is a lot less so you've got to be a lot more careful with with your projections and make sure that they are conservative yeah all right Stephen, you got other follow-on questions more questions yeah i mean do you think let's see what do you think are some of the risks in the commercial space as far as like you mentioned because people have been talking about cap rate compression for a long time but it's really I always felt it's you know it's kind of not the correct narrative having actually the spread versus interest rates being pretty high at some times. And so, but it's a very different scenario now because it's like like you know, you mentioned we have like interest rates up and cap rates down. So that's kind of the, the scenario where do you feel that operationally it may get harder to execute some deals, like where your cash on cash return is no longer there, and just purely like kind of pushing a project together. You know, push, pushing a project for, forward and like pu- pulling like all pieces together. Yeah, it is. I mean, the, the operations are going to come into play a, a lot more than they have in the past. I mean, if you if you bought multifamily between you know, let's say 2011 and now, you know, everything the market would have saved you, right? Everybody's done well because even if you didn't do a very good job at operating the prices went up, the cap rates have went down and you're doing just fine. Even if you didn't do a great job, all these folks are getting into it with their first deal and, and they've done, it looks like they've done a great job on paper, but really they've probably made a bunch of mistakes. Um, those mistakes are going to be highlighted here before too long because these deals are getting thinner and thinner. I mean, even the deals I see from other people putting out, you know, those projected returns are much lower and lower and operations, good, good operators are going to be highlighted and bad operators are going to be highlighted. Yeah. I think there's, there's a Warren Buffett quote that I love, you know, when, when the tide goes out, you find out who's swimming without, you know, who's swimming naked essentially. Right. So, um, you know, along the same lines, the market has, has really fueled most of the returns. And as the tide's going out, you have to be able to operate well. And I think personally, it, it may be a smarter way to invest if you're um, bringing more capital to the table, you know, instead of going for that 80%, you know, LTV loan or LTC loan, you know, maybe you come in. Um, I, I think like the core and core plus assets now are going to be a better alternative than your value add or opportunistic. So coming in with 40% down payment on an A or B class asset, um, that, that's my own personal opinion, what I'm looking for. Yeah, agreed. I mean, the, the, the better you know, the class A, the class B, the core, the core plus, um, even development, you know, they're, they're looking a lot shinier than, than, you know, your typical class B minus C value add, because the the difference in pricing is, is yeah. collapsed so much that it, it starts making sense to, to buy something higher quality. Yeah. Um, what about actually rent growth? 
if we have like for more time for another question. So rent growth uh, assumptions that yeah. you guys do, I think it's a very question. interesting question. Since on one side, the trend has been like humongous rent growth, but then until when? And so on the other side, it might totally reverse at some point and assuming we have a recession. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, for me, we're, we're still underwriting at, we, we never really aggressively underwrote rent growth. I mean, even if we're looking at a property in Austin or Charlotte or somewhere where the rent growth has been ridiculous over the last five years, we're still underwriting at just the market rent growth, not the forced uh, rent growth at you know 2%. Um, somewhere that. And then we've actually increased the expenses due to inflation and all that, you know, 3%, 3.5%. Um, so typically we would just do 2%, 2% for the um, expenses and rent growth. Um, but now we're kind of doing it a little bit different, a little bit even more conservative, um, 2% rent growth and maybe 3 3.5% expense growth. Yeah. I think, I think that's smart. I think a lot of people are very bullish on the rent growth, but they, they forget the other opposite end of that equation, which is you know, inflation is going to raise your expenses just as quickly or even more more quickly than it raises your your income. A um, couple of things that I that I look at, and you know, every property, every market's different, but um, typically the rent growth lags behind the single family home price growth or the median home price growth. Usually there, there's a six to twelve month lag, and it's it's about fifty percent. So if single family homes go up by you know, 10% within the next year, you should get at least 5% rent growth, right? So there, there's a couple of things on there and I, I'm very hesitant to put anything above a 3% on my rent escalator column on my my spreadsheet. But I, I think if, if there's areas where you can, where you, you have a little more certainty that the rents are going to go up, um, you can be a little more aggressive year one, but once I get past, you know, once once I get year two and beyond, my my rent growth is flat back down to, you know, two two and a half percent. So, um, yeah, and the other the other part of the the equation is inflation. You know, if if and not if we've experienced about seven eight percent inflation over the last year, and if people are on twelve year lease or twelve month leases, when their lease comes due their rents are probably going to grow by a, about the inflation rate. So um, as far as my underwriting, I'm I'm happy being a little more aggressive year one. And that's it. Yeah, I like that, Brian. I mean, the farther out you get on the timeline, the less certain it becomes. So yeah. you can kind of look at where the rent growth has been in that market last year, this year, yep. and kind of project that out for the first year or two. Um, after that, you're really just guessing. Yep. Do you have some uh, favorite markets right now, mm-hmm. sets that you are you really like besides uh, Kansas City? I mean, I would love to be in Charlotte and Austin yeah. in those markets, but those deals are pretty hard to come by. Um, so you got to yeah. go to where the deals are. So right now we're pretty pretty heavy on the Midwest, um, but the better markets in the Midwest. Um, we we just closed a deal in Des Moines. Um, Des Moines is the fastest growing population growth wise in the Midwest. We've been looking there. Um, Kansas City is actually getting a little bit outpriced too. It's hard to find anything, any value add there. Um, hence why we're doing development um, places like that. Um, but always looking, you know, in that Sun Belt. I mean, that's the bread and butter. If you can find anything in the in the Carolinas, Texas, Florida, Arizona, those are the, those are the, the best markets. It's just trying to find a deal nowadays. Yeah. And I, I, when I first started, I leaned towards, you know, the Southeast, my wife's from South Carolina and we were living, you know, in the DC area, short drive, you know, so that's where we focused. But uh, 
Um, I was born and raised in Salt Lake City area, and part of me wishes that I would have gone heavy there because the growth in Salt Lake City has um, outpaced almost every other market. I mean, Austin's still ahead of it. And, you know, here, here I am with my University of Utah shirt, drinking from my University of Utah mug. And, and uh, um, that's, that's one of the markets that I'm looking at jumping into right now, maybe four years, five years too late, but I think there's still a lot of potential in that market. Um, one thing I, I'm looking at right now, and I want to jump into the numbers a little more deeply. I've been saying this for a month now, but you know, spillover, you know, a lot of people are paying attention to like the Californians and New York's, you know, where people are leaving California and Chicago and New York at the rapid rate. And they're going to the Southeast, they're going to Texas, they're going to Phoenix. But, you know, the question that I have is, you know, when Phoenix gets overheated and when Salt Lake gets overheated and when Boise gets overheated, you know, where's that spillover going to, going to happen? You know, so that's what I'm starting to look at right now. I haven't quite answered the question, but I'm, I'm thinking that there's, there's going to be some, you know, secondary and tertiary markets that are going to explode um, in the next several, next couple of years. Yeah, agreed. All right, more questions. Um, I think I think I asked most most of the okay. questions covered today. Mm-hmm. All right, uh, sounds good. So, um, all right. We're about out of time on this one. So I want to thank both of you guys for coming on the show today. Very much appreciate your time. Great conversation. And uh, one last question for each of you. And Seth, you get to go first. How can listeners learn more about you? Yeah, check out the podcast. Go to PassiveIncomeAttorney.com. We've got some free content there. Um, I'm, I'm up to three episodes a week at this point. So there's tons of stuff on there. We've got some articles. We've got some free downloads, mm-hmm. all kinds of good stuff. Get on the mailing list and jump in my circle. All right. www.passiveincomeattorney.com. And incidentally, we're at three a week right now. And, uh, you know, I, I think uh, I, I look at these guys who are doing daily shows and just makes me scratch my head. Three a week, three weeks enough. So, um, all right. So that information will be in the show notes, passiveincomeattorney.com. Check out his podcast, check out his website. Stefan, Stefan, same question for you. How can listeners learn more about you? Yeah, um, you mentioned, Brian, earlier, my website is uh, rioticon.com. So this is um, the best way. I also run a weekly live webinar called Finance Meets Real Estate. So they can check uh, Finance Meets Real Estate on YouTube as well. All right. And we'll put links to that Finance Links Real Estate YouTube site in the show notes and uh, and realtyquant.com there. So definitely check out what he has to offer. And uh Um, Once again, thank you to both of you for coming on the show today. I very much appreciate your time. Thanks, Brian. Appreciate it. Thanks for listening to the Diary of an Apartment Investor podcast by the Tribe of Titans. If you're still listening, you obviously liked it. So go ahead and subscribe to the podcast, leave a five-star rating and review if you haven't already, and then make sure to check out our YouTube channel, which incidentally has a ton of video content that you'll also enjoy and learn from. Now, if you're interested in being on the show, go to our website, diaryofanapartmentinvestor.com and fill out the questionnaire on the website. And for more educational content and for more information about our educational community, check us out at thetribeoftitans.info.